You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of the Retail Remix podcast. Special because, one, we're on video today, and two, we have a full house. I brought the entire Retail Touchpoints editorial team with me to chat about all things NRF. We have Adam Blair, editor on the line, as well as Nicole Silberstein, e-commerce editor, and Brian Wassel, news editor. Guys, I put you in the hot seat. I'm sorry, but thank you for being here. It's the usual place we are anyway, so that's fine. (laughs) That's right. Just a different format, right? Well, let's get into it. We have a lot to discuss. Obviously, first time back at the big show for a while. How did it feel for you all? I know I personally was a little worried, a little overwhelmed. It was a smaller crowd than we're used to, but still back on the street, so to speak, back having a lot of conversations, watching a lot of content. You give me the scoop. How was it for you all? I was just, I think I shared your anxiety pre-show. I definitely was feeling that. And I feared that it would really would be like a desert, like tumbleweeds going through the aisles of the Javits Center. It was not, no question. I'm also, and not necessarily just giving a plug for the NRF, but um, but it was remarkable that they did pull it together and it operated as well as it did, given all the challenges that were happening right up to the day of, and I'm sure otherwise. I mean, certainly there were sessions and events that were canceled because people couldn't make it, but... I felt like it was a pretty positive experience. And in some ways, having fewer people there made it a a little less hectic and a little bit more able to dive into things. So I'd say I was, like I said, somewhat gratified that it actually took place. Yeah, I agree, Adam. I mean, I think there was still plenty to see on the show floor, lots of exciting stuff. And I certainly got my fill of lots of great new ideas and insights from all the leaders who presented. So it was, I mean, it was all in all like a pretty worthwhile experience still, although foot traffic was down. Despite that, I still didn't make it in time to get one of the salads at the Amazon Just Walk Out kiosk. They were all sold out (laughs) within like half an hour. So I know everyone was talking about how the Starbucks lines were so short. I was like, what Starbucks are they going to? (laughs) Exactly. The line seemed just as long as normal. Mm. How about you, Brian? How was the show for you overall? Yeah, the thing was good. Honestly, the thing that really stood out to me was the new expansion of the Javits Center. The fact that you can have the sessions away from the floor. You can actually hear what they're saying, which obviously at these, there's a lot of good stuff being said. So the less noise, the less distraction, the better. I didn't get to spend that much time on the floor. I have a very small daughter, so I was being super cautious. But I was actually surprised. There were a decent number of people there, and it's good because, you know, this is a big event. When it doesn't happen, it's a big deal for the industry. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think they did a really great job on hitting on a very wide, diverse range of topics that align with the centralized theme of Accelerate, which is obviously a word that we've been saying a lot, we've been hearing a lot, and of course, we've been including a lot in our coverage. Adam, I would love your take on just like how they presented this theme and how it was executed upon from a topical standpoint. Because like I said, very much repeated over the course of the last year or two, were there any new revelations or even aha moments around like how they kind of brought this theme to life? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of ways that it happened, certainly. I noticed it most in some of the sessions that I attended, particularly they got some pretty high-powered CEOs to speak during the sessions and the keynotes. One of them was uh, an interesting one, the Albertson CEO, Vivek Sankaran. It was sort of a note of 
how quickly things change, but that they're still changing. He said they're still getting, having difficulty getting full allocations of beverages, pet supplies, and paper products, including toilet paper. And I guess it depends on where you are in the country. I kind of thought the, the toilet paper issue had been taken care of, but I think it's still, when you're talking about supplying hundreds or thousands of stores, obviously there's big issues there. Another one was about it accelerating. I think another A word is adaptable, which was a constant refrain, certainly from the speakers. Brian Cornell of Target, which has been one of the success stories during the pandemic, talked about and inflation was a big topic and a big concern. He talked about that retailers have to adapt. We've been through inflationary periods before. It causes changes in consumer behavior that people need to pay attention to. If prices of restaurant meals go up, people eat more at home. They may look for private label brands versus a, a national brand. If gas prices go up, consumers are going to drive fewer miles. And certainly those were happening anyway, partially because of covid I guess what struck me about it was less the specifics of that, but he's saying we're going to need to learn, we're going to learn a lot about how the consumer reacts over the next 60, 90, and 120 days to inflation. They've got to keep an, a weather eye on this like constantly, basically, and it's a rolling question as to what's going on there. And Nicole, I think you had said there was uh, there another, another A word. A word that might, <laughs> that might be important. Yeah, in continuing this. with the alliteration. The- <laughs> The keynote on the last day, Carla Harris from Morgan Stanley kind of defined it as an amplification over the last few years of consumer voice and choice and also employee voice and choice and how that's playing out now at the at, at the retailer level. But the other thing, too, just taking the word accelerate, like really literally, I think what everybody's feeling across the industry is this need for speed, like the need to move so much faster to respond faster. And I think you could really see that across the show in, in the topics that were covered, but also in all the tech that was being displayed. And I think Matthew Shea, the president of the NRF said at one point, how the show has increasingly over the years gotten more and more technology oriented. And I think that's just because the speed at which retailers are being asked to do all this and shift and change is just not possible anymore without some of these like next gen tools. And all of that was clearly on display at the show. Yeah. Yeah. There was a great example of that from the PepsiCo CEO, Stephen Williams. He was talking about one of their subsidiaries, I believe their direct to consumer channel called snacks.com. He said, we've been talking about doing a D to C channel for a long time. And then COVID forced us to create it. And he says they they created the platform in under 40 days. Now, anybody that knows about any kind of tech implementation knows that's that's a very aggressive rollout. He also talked about something that I thought was fun. They found a use for stranded assets. I guess that was products or things that they couldn't sell in certain places. So they collaborated between their Quaker division and their Frito-Lay business to create a Cheetos mac and cheese flavor. Now, I don't buy boxed mac and cheese. I'm not sure I would eat Cheetos mac and cheese, but if you're into that, there it was. There it was. <laughs> maybe they could sell it. So I think that's a great example of both acceleration and adaptability. I'm going to 100% go out and try to yeah, find Yeah, I'm going to have to remember that for my shopping list. Yeah. You think your kids might like that? <laughs> this, this sounds like essential research here. Could be. It's all for research at the end of the day. Um, no, a lot <laughs> of, of really great points. And I think this idea of acceleration and, and adaptability kind of coming together really applied, I think, across a lot of the sessions that I sat in on. And I want to bring up a very interesting point that came up in the session with Deb Weinswig and Liz 
Basilar of Estee Lauder. So their big topic was the metaverse, which we're going to dig into in a little bit. But Liz brought up this really interesting point that she kind of sees omni-channel, which obviously kind of ties into the new consumer behaviors, the acceleration of digital, that she looks at omni-channel largely as an operational play. So something that has to happen inside the organization. It's how the teams operate, how they collaborate, what infrastructure needs to be in place. And then she looks at convergence as the customer-facing experience. So they don't just look at online channel and store as a channel. They look at this entire universe that the brand is bringing to life and that may be digital, that may be in person, but it's all centralized. It's all together. It's all unified. Since omnichannel is a very big part of our day-to-day vocabulary at retail touch points, what do you guys think about this? Do you think that there is some validity in like this notion that we may be need to rethink the words we use or how we present these new ideas and opportunities, especially as we think about the customer-facing side of things? Well, just to throw another term in the mix, IBM and NRF put out a big consumer study, and they are now calling it hybrid retailing. Honestly, I think on the consumer level, it doesn't matter what we call it in the industry. They're not looking at these channels as independent things anymore. They are, to your point, looking at the brand and the whole experience, and they want the same experience, whether they're on the app, on the website, in the store. And I think that's something that's been very clear over the last year and kind of a call to action for retailers. But on the back end, like you were saying, a lot of what has to happen to make that happen, that true omni-channel is back-end stuff. And a lot of it is removing the silos that many retail organizations still have between these different channels. The consumer is not seeing them anymore, but the retailer still is in many ways on the back end in their data and their operations. It makes me wonder like how these new applications kind of come to life within an organization, especially one that has so much heritage, right? Because Ralph Lauren, you know, their CEO did a keynote fireside chat, and it was fascinating to hear how they're dipping their toe into the metaverse. And they're just like, this is where our customer is. This is a new opportunity for us to reach the next generation of consumers because this is where they're hanging out. But they were thinking about how do we bring the essence of Ralph Lauren and that elevation of the brands to life in a way that makes sense. And and that's what I think a lot of brands really need to think about because when they brought up NFTs, he was saying, you know, we want to be careful, right? Like we don't just want to like jump into it because everyone else is doing it. Like we want to make sure it makes sense from a holistic brand strategy perspective and that when people see Apollo NFT, for example, it's like, oh, okay, this makes sense with the experiences that they're trying to create and how they're kind of creating these digital watering holes, so to speak, for their shoppers. And that was a very surprising example. Like, I did not know how deep they were in like testing these different metaverse communities and like actually have real estate like in the metaverse. And I was just like pleasantly surprised that a brand with that much heritage and that much tradition was so willing to go into the deep end, so to speak. Yeah, you know, I I think there's a a hesitation on any business's part, certainly retailers, of you don't want to chase the next shiny thing. It might just be a fizzle out. You don't want to devote a ton of resources to that. So I think it's interesting that 
we've been talking about omnichannel versus convergence. Convergence, I think, is actually a very good word for the old saying. Now it's an old saying. Consumers don't shop channels. They shop a brand or a retailer. As Nicole said, they're not really aware of that. But I guess also addressing the silos issue, if you think omnichannel internally, hopefully you can, as Ralph Lauren is talking about, bring the Ralph Lauren brand, the heritage, everything positive associated with it to anything they go into. And I think certainly that's what any strong retailer or brand is is shooting for, is to have their personality, as it were, really at any point of customer contact. Yeah. It ties in nicely, I think, with was shared in the Chewy keynote, where the CEO talked about Chewy was a destination, right? And he was like, we were very mindful of not saying an online destination because we wanted to open up more opportunity and and leave it open to our team of where we wanted the brand experience to go. Like now they're in telemedicine, right? Like they have expanded into all of these different services. So, I mean, Adam, what did you uncover in that session? Because I know you did some coverage on that. Yeah, that was a fascinating session. I just focused on their uh, their customer service, which is supposed to be really superior. And Summit Singh, who's their CEO, kind of explained some of the reasons why. But yeah, I thought one of the things that was interesting was he said very specifically, when they've gone into new areas, it's because they're listening to their own people and their customers. And that actually ties into customer service, because I'm sure they are listening to what people are saying in customer service. So like you say, telehealth. They have essentially established a B2B segment for veterinarians called the Practice Hub, where the vets can sell their products and pet descriptions, I love that, to different Chewy customers, but also get help with running their practices, which I'm sure like like a human doctor, that's that's a big challenge. He very much, you're right, he didn't say we're a pure play. He was like, we're a pet care destination. He hinted at going international, he hinted, or at least was open to the possibility of having a physical brick and mortar presence. And I think that shows a very omni-channel convergence sort of approach to things. The moderator even teased like, oh, I could see there being like pet hotels in the future. And I was like, of all the brands to do it, I mean, Chewy would make sense. <laughs> Chewy hotels. He made a great point. They focus, of course, on what they call the pet parents. Uh, but they said there's a whole ecosystem of borders. Groomers, kennels, vets, obviously, you know, dog walkers, people that you meet at the dog park. It's kind of a whole, I like that they're thinking bigger rather than smaller in terms of that. For sure. All right. I do want to dig into some of the more nitty gritty topics and trends. I know we've kind of sprinkled it over the course of our early stages of the conversation, but there were some pretty present, consistent themes, I think, that came out of the content. Of course, going back to metaverse, I just want to put a quick bow on that topic because the buzz is undeniable. A lot of people very excited about it, a lot of movement, a lot of experimentation, but also a lot of people that are like the ones that are thinking and speaking in absolutes, right? Like everything will be in the metaverse or... How could that be? People need a physical experience. And Nicole, I know you and I have been brainstorming ways to kind of bring this story to life and dig into some of the key takeaways. But what really rose to the top for you in the sessions that you watched about the metaverse? 
Yeah, I think the overarching trend is that like we're very clearly at the very early stages of this. There's a lot that's going to need to happen for this to become the thing that we're really talking about the metaverse in terms of accessibility. And that's like everything from like 5G to software prices coming down and I mean, sorry, hardware prices like to get the equipment to actually be in these immersive virtual environments. It felt to me like everybody, for the most part, was still trying to really get a handle on it. There are, of course, those, the people who are already in there, those early adapters like Ralph Lauren. And it felt to me, though, that like a lot of other folks were really still just trying to figure out, well, how do I dip my toe in? So I, I would say like it's we're very clearly in the early stages of everybody figuring out what this really means from a practical level for for their own retail business and their own consumer. And I think just like any other channel, it's going to iterate very differently depending on what kind of retailer you are and who your consumer is. Yeah. A hundred percent. And it'll be interesting, I think, to see what different tests are rolled out, different approaches, and also how it will shape future demand from the consumer standpoint, but also from a development and even talent standpoint. That was a really interesting takeaway from the one session that I sat in on is that people need to develop the strategy, implement the experience, and have the technical capabilities and technical knowledge to create a storefront in Roblox, right? So where that demand is going to come from, like the types of experiences and, you know, whether it's a design talent, is it purely technical? Is it a combination? Could be a big opportunity, but also could be a bit of a squeeze. I think, you know, we're already talking about the fight for talent, right? But knowing that there is demand on the tech side, right, with like the metas of the world, and even for like the platforms and real estate companies like Roblox, but then there's also the demand from the brand side now. So that's going to be an area I think I'm going to keep a close eye on because I can see there being some tension in the future for sure. And I think this connects in some way to this notion of culture and like the type of business and community brands want to create. And I know that was, again, not just the metaverse, but overall, like a very important topic because over the past two years, there has been the great resignation or people are calling it the great rethink or the great reassessment, which I think is a bit more appropriate because a lot of it was out of necessity, right? Like people had to stay home. They had to do homeschooling. They had to care for their families. But also there was a good group of people that were like, do I really want to do this? Like, is this work making me feel good? Is this company making me feel good? Are they aligned with my values and like what I want to put out into the world? And I know we watched a lot of sessions around DE&I and just culture at a high level. And, and Brian, I know you did a great piece around the actionable side of things, right? Like the how-tos, like the real-life work that brands are doing. So what are some of the summary takeaways that you think are important to note here? I think the big thing, the big bottom line to all of this is that it's no longer just something that you do. It's just part of who you are. I know companies that are trying to, you know, build up this culture where we're accepting, we work with minority groups, we work with LGBTQ organizations, they're already behind. Uh, I believe it was uh, James Fripp, who's uh, Chief Equality and Inclusion Officer at Young Brands, who said it's about growing your potential audience. The diversity, the uh, corporate responsibility, it's already here. This is what people expect. You can't say we are hiring more minority executives. The question becomes, 
why didn't you already have these minority executives in the first place? So uh, I guess I guess the really the best way to look at it is the it comes back to this. I've written about this even prior to NRF. I'll continue writing about this until I die. Authenticity. People can tell if your company, if you actually really believe this, if this is really part of your company down to the bone, or if during Pride Month you put out a rainbow flag and then call it a day. You really have to put in the groundwork. It can't be considered part of the bottom line. This is just, this is how your company operates. This is something you believe in. And you can't be cynical. You can't just do what you think is the absolute minimum. And if you do go ahead and do that, people are going to notice. And even this can even come... Um, through in places that you might not expect. Let's say you have a mentorship program. You're doing a good thing. You're really thought it through. You're going above and beyond. You're giving your time, not just your money. And uh, something that was brought up in one of the panels I, I attended was that people of color and women are overly mentored and underly sponsored. Essentially, you give them advice and you say, here's how this is done. Here's what you might want to do to advance your career. And that's great. That's nice. But that's not enough by itself. It needs to be an authentic relationship. It needs to go both ways. One idea that was brought up is the idea of reverse mentoring, where the mentoree and the mentor teach each other. The, the younger person who's maybe not as experienced in you know, how the boardroom works and what the great, how to keep up with the fads and tell the winners and the losers, they might not know that, but they know how to use social media. They know what the youth that you might be uh, trying to target with your products is looking for. They might uh, know like, hey, this process you've in place is old and crusty. There's new tech that I use every day that's ready to go. I mean, at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is building these connections. And part of that is the connections have to go all the way from the top, all the way to the bottom. You know, you mentioned the great resignation or any of the many other names being called under, but... A lot of people just don't feel that connection to the company and company culture is all about building that connection with everyone. That means that means your associates, that means your managers, that means your regional managers, that means people at the home office. Every single person has to feel that connection to the company and just, I guess, building that D&I is part of that because you're all in this together at that point. It's not just something you're doing to try to sell to a customer. Yeah, really amazing points. And, and, yeah, go ahead, Adam. Sorry to interrupt. You know, Brian, I, I love the idea about reverse mentoring, and I think it's not just a generational thing. If someone's from a minority group or has a different identity or something, they do have something to communicate and share with other people. And I understand that that can be delicate. It can be difficult to navigate sometimes, but I think it's just an, another and a possibly better way of looking at the mentor-mentee relationship, that it is or should be a two-way street. So that was a great point, I thought. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said about the C-level helping enforce these new programs, these new policies, and basically saying this is something that we're holding everyone accountable on. This is something that's like integrated and embedded into everything we do. But then like you also need to like listen to the people on the bottom, so to speak, like people in stores, you know, people in lower levels of the organization, like have that ongoing cycle of feedback to ensure that the C-level is focusing on the issues, developing the programs that matter most and creating that equity and opportunity that everyone was talking about so much over the course of the event. And Nicole, I know you have some perspectives on the role that the C-level plays in making all these things a reality and helping build the culture out. So what else do you have to add to this topic? Well, one of the things that stood out to me in the session with the CEO of IKEA, Javier, I'm going to butcher this, Quinones, something close to that. Yes. <laughs> he, he talked a lot about how 
the leadership has to like walk the walk. And I think the best example of it is the fact that he, so for them, sustainability is a really huge corporate focus. And it has been for many years, even kind of before, I think it started to become a real consumer led movement. And he is not just the CEO, he's also the chief sustainability officer. So he's taken on that dual role. It's so important to him that he's like taken on that dual role and building out the organization around this really important, like, cultural and ethical initiative for the company. So for him, it was a lot about how you do have to lead from the top. That doesn't mean though, that you're not like listening was another thing that we heard over and over. You mentioned it, Adam from the Chewy CEO, listening to your customers, listening to your employees and using that feedback to continually evolve your culture as well. 100%. And since we brought up sustainability with IKEA, I do want to touch on that a little bit. I know Ralph Lauren, their big goal is to be leaders in that space. They were founding members of the Fashion Coalition, but I learned about a lot of other things that they're doing that I, I feel like I didn't really see a lot of buzz and coverage about. So they've invested in color on demand, which is a new way of color dyeing apparel, which obviously is from a material waste perspective, it needs to be rethought. So I thought that was really notable. And they're also investing in natural fiber welding, a science startup that is basically revolutionizing the reuse of natural fibers like cotton, like Cotton is a, a big driver of that fashion waste. Cotton through fast fashion, for example, being in landfills. So they're trying to reuse that material to create high performance materials, which I thought was very interesting. So just seeing like actual applications and investments being made in the reuse of materials, you know, rethinking of operations and, you know, development of products. Like I left refreshed and excited about this area that. I feel like there's a lot of greenwashing happening. There's a lot of talking the talk, but not so much walking the walk. And I, I'm curious if others felt the same way, like in terms of walking away, thinking about this topic through a more practical lens and, and a more actionable lens as well. I felt really the same after hearing the IKEA session too. There was a lot of stuff that they're doing that I had not heard of before like they're building out so and now granted they're huge so they can do this but they're building out solar farms with the goal and i think it's going to happen very soon that they'll actually be energy positive so they're going to produce more energy than their stores use and they'll be able to like sell that energy and i think ikea is such a great example of a retailer who really is delivering from a to z on the sustainability metric because on the other side of the spectrum javier also talked about just the decision to, to only start selling LED light bulbs to customers and not only that decision, but then over the years working to bring the cost of those light bulbs down. So I think he said when they first started selling them, it was $7 a light bulb. It was very expensive. Now they're able to sell those much more sustainable light bulbs for like a buck 25. So really a company, they've also rolled, they've also expanded. They've always had their as is furniture section. They've rolled that out and they're making a, a really big, like kind of resale initiative that they're building out too for their furniture. So I think really a company that is from A to Z delivering on the sustainability metric and somebody we can look to for ideas and ways to do the same. Yeah. I think that the metrics was a big thing this time around, right? Because everyone is realizing, oh, we can't just like do a feel good marketing campaign. We can't just do like a limited 
collection that is made of like ethically sourced materials. Like we need to like quantify this impact, not just for our consumers, but also for our board. And I think seeing the new legislation coming out, the new requirements for public company as I think is really turning the heat on, so to speak, but seeing the different ways companies are going about that is really interesting. And I'm really excited to see what else um, comes out there. And we are running very tight on time. I think I underestimated how much there was to talk about. But before we get into some of like the tech trends specifically laid out on the floor and how that may be an indicator of the trends to watch for the rest of the year, Brian, I want to turn to you because you were really digging deep into some of the new growth opportunities, not just through new technologies, but also new markets. What were some of the notable findings and even data points that came out of the sessions that you watched in this area? Yeah, sure. I'll keep it brief. Obviously, the elf in the room is China. That's the next great frontier for any retailers looking to expand their market. In 2020, $2.3 trillion in e-commerce revenue, which is more than half of overall e-commerce market worldwide, which I believe was about 4.3. And uh, just I spoke to, uh, I didn't speak to, I heard sessions from Alibaba and from Victoria's Secret. And the one thing they had in common is that you need partners. If you're going to expand into any foreign market, even if you can have algorithms that tell you how to handle taxes, how to deal with local currencies and wallets and such, but unless you have a partner, you're not going to actually be able to market to people properly. Victoria's Secret, they said that you must have an air of humility. You know, you might be a big shot in the US, but you're across the world now. They have different expectations. They uh, look for something else. You might have a quality product, but for instance, uh, one thing that was brought up is that if you have a luxury brand, very high quality legacy brand, they don't care about that necessarily. They care that you're social, that, you're per- that, that, that their friends are using your product, that you're speaking to them. That's why live streaming is big. I mean, with the 11 Eleven Festival, that was a big part of it. That's why accessibility is a big deal where they uh, helped uh, seniors, you know, get involved. And honestly, that's the key takeaway. Get out there. Make sure you understand what that market is looking for and don't be afraid to reinvent everything if you need to. You have to understand that growing internationally, you're not the big shot you are at home. You're someone new. You're the upstart. Yeah, that empathy, humility, and trying to connect in a more natural way, an authentic way with those different markets, definitely something I heard in bits and pieces throughout the event. This has been amazing, guys. I, again, applaud the NRF for sharing such a great breadth and depth of content, a lot of different speakers, but also the floor had a very diverse range of solutions. I know I was super excited to see the um, Innovation Lab and Startup Zone get so much play. It, It was a very vibrant space, a lot of exciting stuff happening. I'm thinking we close things off by maybe tapping into some of the things that like we all saw on the floor or Brian, maybe elsewhere for you, like how they may tie to, I guess, the big trends or the hot topics for 2022. I mean, obviously we we talked a lot about metaverse sustainability, but what else are retailers maybe leaning into as they roll out their strategies for this entire year? (laughs) I feel like every year is longer. (laughs) Adam, how about we start with you? Sure. Well, like you, the uh, Innovation Lab area was fascinating, and I wish I'd had a bit more time to explore. One thing I noticed was a pretty heavy emphasis on robotics, a bunch of different companies. Uh, One I visited was Autonomy, but there were Geek Plus, Ohi, Drone Up, Retail Robotics, Agatic, Autonomous Vehicles, I think. I think that's a good indicator about 
maybe lingering concerns about things being contactless, not necessarily having a human touching the thing that is, you know, bringing it to you, and also maybe eventually a labor issue. Not just the robotics shown there, but the robotics in, say, like a micro-fulfillment center that allows that to be super, super efficient and serve people. The Albertson CEO talked about the different ways you shop a supermarket. There's the perimeter departments like deli and bakery and the butcher where you're very involved in it. And then there's the center aisle, the dog food and the kitty litter, et cetera. That's kind of a chore. He said, we'll still, even 10 or 15 years from now, people will still want to pick out the bouquet of flowers that they want to send to a sick friend. But hopefully the supermarket will take care of the dull chore stuff for you. Yeah. Like what can and be so automated be, versus high touch. Yeah. 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 And, it, and it'll be a different kind of hybrid retail. It's maybe you get that heavy stuff delivered and you just go for the, the more personal stuff. Yeah. Nicole, how about you? What excited you from the floor? I think going into the event, I expected kind of a, something similar from what we saw at CES with metaverse being like the big theme, but really what I walked away from having heard everybody touch on was workforce and how to improve engagement and just the environment for their employees. And there was so many really unique ways that people are working to do that, like hands-free tech for pickers and things to like scanners that are more powerful. So you don't have to bend over as much. And there was just so much. And on the data side, there was just so much there. And I felt such a focus on improving the employee experience and finding ways to make working in retail more exciting and engaging. And I thought that was, that was really exciting to see, because I feel like it's clearly something that needs to be addressed and it's going to continue to be a huge challenge for retailers moving into this year. So that focus on employees and the employee experience was really exciting. Yeah, I 100% agree. I know there are companies like Corso that are very focused on store managers and district managers. So giving them access to the insight and analytics, you know, across those stores so they can be more agile and, and, you know, better take action across the board. You know, that, that really stood out to me. And then companies like Ubic, which are very focused on like connecting the dots between headquarters and the store and the associates, right? Like making sure everybody's aligned, that they feel empowered to make changes or, you know, implement new merchandising displays or marketing campaigns. So things that we've heard about in the past, but definitely there, there seems to be a, an emphasis on like, how can associates do their job better? So agree a hundred percent. Brian, I know you didn't spend as much time on the floor, but any other tech trends that you think will rise to the top over the next year? Honestly, uh, from what I did see, it was kind of a combination of both Adam and Nicole's experiences where it's a lot about the workforce and a lot about automation. And it's honestly almost a, a two front war between them. Uh, you're trying to retain what you have by helping them by making their job easier, by making them more efficient, but you're also trying to patch the holes that you're having trouble filling with since it's so hard to hire people right now with, you have autonomous, not necessarily vehicles in this case, but just wait, like the industry of robots, that sort of thing where you can do more with less. And honestly, it's been kind of interesting to see how these two sides of the equation, you know, meet and combine in the middle where you have a presumably fewer associates at the store, but those that you do have have an easier time. They have they're able to uh, handle tasks more efficiently. And I think I feel like twenty twenty two is going to be a big year in terms of that really coming to fruition and reaching that next level. Yeah, very great points. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring here for one final trend that is very fascinating for me, and that's returns. I know that with the rise in e commerce, returns have been called out time and time again. 
to be a big friction point for consumers and also a big driver of costs for the retailers. So interesting companies that are trying to minimize returns like 3D look, so their fit technology. So consumers are more likely to find the right fit and less likely to order three to four pairs at different sizes and then have to return them. So a good tie-in to sustainability and efficiency there. But also companies like Parcel Lab, which is all about streamlining and personalizing that returns experience as well. I mean, we hear so much about using personalization to get the sale, but they're thinking about like the full journey and that includes, of course, returns. So very interesting to see the juxtaposition between the content, which is very cultural, very creative, of course, with like the metaverse, very exciting and, you know, tech driven live streaming, very hot topics. But of course, you know, there are the fundamentals, right? Like for retailers that need to be done, they need to be addressed, they need to be improved. And they also are big drivers of the customer experience. So it definitely goes to show like there is no silver bullet, there's no magic solution, it really does need to be a well rounded experience focused on the customer. Guys, thank you again so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules and a very exhausting <laughs> few days to chat about NRF with me. I know it was a very successful show for me. I, I got to learn a lot. I got to meet some people IRL, which was very little jarring, but very exciting. Hope it was the same for you. Thank you guys again so much for taking the time out. Thanks, Alicia. You're absolutely welcome. This was great. And uh, thanks to all of you for joining us. Hope we can keep the conversation going. If you had any key findings or haha moments, did I say haha? Aha moments. I'm so tired. I am laughing. Not far off. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter at our touch points or on LinkedIn at retail touch points. And who knows, you may be getting a comment from one of us. Thanks again, everyone. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.